It was a Saturday morning, and I remember it was very hot, and my brother and I were sleeping in our bedrooms over there and um, couldn't sleep because it was hot. It was 1955, and Frank Vargo was six years old living in Whiting, Indiana, an industrial community on the southern tip of Lake Michigan. Whiting was a company town, and the company was Standard Oil, whose massive Whiting refinery sat right in among the neighborhoods. I was just laying in bed. I was wide awake. And uh, all I remember is a tremendous blast and my mom jumping up in the other bedroom yelling, you know, what's going on? And we all ran, of course, to the uh, kitchen window, which was facing the refinery. And uh, to me, as a little kid, the fire looked like it was in our backyard. That's how close it was. A 26-story hydroformer, the largest in the country, had exploded. It shot a mushroom cloud 8,000 feet into the air and ignited a 40-acre fire with 1,000-foot flames. Our house was about a half mile, actually, from the blast uh, itself, so we were very, very close to it. Uh, luckily, the house did not have any major damage. There were a couple windows broken in the garage and so forth, but luckily there was no physical damage to the house or to my brother and... Uh, my mom and myself. Vargo's family evacuated to his grandmother's house a mile further away. We didn't stay at my grandmother's that long because about noon, the fire chief or whatever ordered an evacuation of even the area where we were at. And I remember on the corner of my grandmother's house, uh, there was a store, a little candy store and so forth. And right across from there was our school, the school I attended, Immaculate Conception. And it was a three-story building, and I remember the flames were way up above the three-story building. You could just feel the heat, and you could just see the flames billowing. So they drove to his aunt's house, which was even farther away, also in Whiting. And then, after a couple of explosions rocked the city, they left Whiting completely for nearby Hammond. They didn't return for two days. And, Frank told me, things were strange after that. Back in those days, you didn't talk about... uh, you know, things that people respond to today, like, you know, veterans and so forth. They have nightmares and, and, and flashbacks of when they were in combat. Well, to me as a little kid, you know, I felt the uh, explosion kind of shook me up more than I actually thought it would. And I didn't remember some of these things for a while. But uh, eventually, you know, I, I realized it did have an effect on me personally. From Belt Magazine, this is Fire, a podcast about industrial fires in American life. I'm Ryan Schnur. This episode, episode three, takes us inside the 1955 inferno at the Whiting Refinery and what it meant for the region. I've passed this facility hundreds of times. I grew up in Indiana, lived and went to school in Chicago for a while. Now I'm back. But I still pass the Whiting Refinery regularly, on Amtrak or South Shore trains or drives into the city. If you're taking Interstate 90, the toll road, you're only about a mile away. And there's a thing that happens when you get into the Calumet region. That's the name for the area where Whiting sits, on the southern shore of Lake Michigan. Because it has a distinctive smell, an industrial odor. Which, from what I can tell, is a combination of a few things. Sulfur dioxide from the U.S. steel plant, fermenting corn, maybe the emissions of a soap factory and other miscellaneous chemicals, and gasoline from the BP Whiting refinery. It's the smell of industry, which is to say it's the smell of transformation. 
a byproduct of the sorts of processes that take oil, coal, metals, sand, and other raw materials, and turn them into products for consumption. Fire is a fundamental part of this process, but the intention, usually, is to contain its effects and channel them toward production. So what happens when it breaks free and the consequences of an industry spread through the community? When the boundaries we have so painstakingly imagined between nature and culture and industry collapse, and we are left staring into a new and volatile reality. That's the story of the Whiting Refinery. Even though the skies were often dark and dreary, the future looked brilliant and bright in Whiting, Indiana. In 2015, the Whiting-Robertsdale Historical Society released a short documentary on the 1955 explosion, titled One Minute After Sunrise. The project begins with the arrival of Standard Oil. It was 1895. Just six years earlier, Whiting was not much more than a stop on the rail lines to Chicago. But in 1889, the Standard Oil Company built a huge refinery in Whiting. But when the refinery came here, it changed everything. John Murovich is a local historian who worked on the documentary, along with Frank Vargo, and who also wrote a book of the same name. People give the the date of birth of the town of Whiting is 1889. All that means is that's the year Standard Oil came. Uh, the, the birth date of this town is the birth date of this refinery. Standard Oil began in Cleveland, Ohio in 1870 with a single refinery. By 1872, it ran every refinery in the city. By 1880, it controlled 90% of the refineries in the country. They are a colossus at this time. And it is difficult to try to provide some sort of perspective. You have to go to like Amazon today to get a sense of the the scale at which they were operating and how much control they had in their space. That's Jonathan Vlashuk, who wrote a book about the rise of Standard Oil called Refining Nature. They are living what I describe as the libertarian dream. Zero, almost zero worker rights, zero regulation, and free reign for a company with a lot of capital to do whatever they want. In the late 1880s, Standard Oil moved west. Rockefeller wanted to feed emerging energy markets in the interior of the country, and he needed access to the railroad and shipping networks around Chicago and Lake Michigan. But he didn't want to put his new facility in a city, because space was limited, and because any regulations that did exist were pretty much concentrated there. And so he looks right across the border, just a couple of miles from the border, at this little sleepy railroad crossing. There's not a lot there, but for him, it's ideal because he can he can fully realize the, the dream of efficiency and kind of create the perfect habitat, if you will, for his new refinery, which is going to be the biggest on the planet at that time. The southern shore of Lake Michigan, historically, is a mix of marsh and dunes. Enormous sand hills 20 or 30 feet high, swept up over centuries. It's hard to build a factory in a landscape like this, so Standard Oil had to rearrange. They leveled the dunes and drained the wetlands. They either used French tiles or they just set up sewer drains directly out into the lake. Uh, in the early days, they are going from tank to tank in rowboats because the water is still that high. It hasn't been drained yet. 
They, they moved the Grand Calumet River a half mile north of where it was running. They canalize it. They create a uh, canal. And they also create well, what is called Indiana Harbor to serve as kind of a, a new port on the lake there um, so that they can ship out goods and receive them. And the community of Whiting begins to form around this developing facility. Neighborhoods crop up, including one across the street from the refinery called Rockefeller Park, which is renamed Stieglitz Park after Rockefeller sues them for using his name. And it is everything that a company town would be from having the company control the the housing and the government of the first seven mayors, four of them worked at Standard Oil Company while they were mayors. Um, Two of them were superintendents at the refinery. U.S. Steel moved in. So did ArcelorMittal. Gary and East Chicago Incorporated squeezed up against each other like row houses. The wider Calumet region became one enormous factory, with Whiting its most prominent factory town. Here's John Murovich. Uh, everything is, uh, uh, revolves around the refinery. And at one time, everybody worked there. And that's hardly, that's an exaggeration maybe, just a little bit. Um, not everybody, but boy, close. The city was dependent on the refinery, and the refinery was dependent on the people who worked there, and they had a good relationship. On American highways, from one end of the land to another, there is no more characteristic or familiar sight than the oil truck, making its round of deliveries to farms and factories, to homes and service stations. For in the highly industrialized society the American people have developed, Oil and oil products play a great and evident part. In the early years, Standard Oil was mostly producing kerosene. But by the 20th century, oil was king. Petroleum made its way into nearly every aspect of American life, from plastics to asphalt to food production to gasoline. Oil provides power and lubrication for the complex mechanism of the American economy. Oil production is an inherently dirty, dangerous business pumping the highly flammable, fossilized remains of plants and animals from deep in the earth, shipping them hundreds of thousands of miles, and then heating, pressurizing, and otherwise combining them into products like gasoline and asphalt. And fire is a key part of the process, from the flares burning off natural gas on top of oil rigs to the flame in the cylinder of every internal combustion engine blazing down the highway. And the linchpins, refineries, are essentially one big fire, perpetually burning behind a few inches of steel and a barbed wire fence. There's a lot of chemistry at a refinery. For example, distillation, when crude oil is pumped through a furnace and separated into components called fractions by boiling point. These include gasoline, one of the lightest components, diesel, kerosene, and jet fuel, which are mid-range, and the more tar-like oils, which sink to the bottom. That used to be where it ended, but eventually people figured out how to convert these products into all sorts of things through processes like cracking. Crackers are enormous rocket-shaped tubes that break or crack hydrocarbon molecules. Depending on the situation, they turn heavy oils into mid-range oils like jet fuel, or byproduct liquids like naphtha and ethane into ethylene, the building block of plastics. Cokers are a type of supercracker that turns residual oil into products including pet coke which is basically a dirtier coal. The final products are treated, blended, 
and then stored temporarily in massive tanks at or near the refinery, surrounded by a network of pipelines, railroads, and highways, which transport these oil products all over the country, propelled by, among other things, diesel and gasoline. The air pollution, it clung to everything. You have journalists from Chicago write about the the housewives who are outside hanging their clothes on the line, and the clothes just get speckled with the fallout, the soot that is coming from the pollution. Through the whole process, oil and other chemicals and byproducts are leaking out of pipes and tanks, soaking into the ground and water table. The drainage program that they initiated, of course, um, killed you know the wildlife habitat. But probably more significant for the human population is all the acids that Standard Oil and the um, steel plants um, to the east are dumping into the water system there are going into Lake Michigan. And Lake Michigan is the source of drinking water for all the communities around there, um, including Chicago. And the absence of any regulation to say, you can't do that, they just dumped it down into the um, the nearest drain or into the nearest river tributary. By the turn of the century, regulations had become a little more stringent, but mainly on the commerce side. One of them is the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is supposed to keep one person from controlling too much of an industry. In 1911, after some tremendous muckraking by the journalist Ida Tarbell, the federal government forced Rockefeller to divide his empire. Standard Oil splintered into 34 separate companies, most of which survive today in one form or another, under different names. Exxon, BP, Pennzoil, Chevron, Amoco. The refinery at Whiting continued to be integral to U.S. oil production, eventually under the Amoco name. It's now operated by BP. For a while, it distilled boron-10 for the Manhattan Project. But mostly it's produced gasoline and related products. Scientists there figured out how to get twice as much gas, and with a higher octane, from a barrel of oil. In 1955, the refinery, which was by that point one of the four largest in America, built the country's largest hydroformer, a 250-foot-tall tank with steel walls up to three inches thick. It was specifically designed to produce high-octane gasoline. Then, on August 27, 1955... Whiting, Indiana, is almost engulfed in flames and smoke that roll 400 feet into the air as an oil refinery fire runs amok. For more than the hydroformer exploded. Upwards of 4 million gallons of high-octane gasoline pose an almost impossible task for firefighters, summoned from every surrounding community. In addition to the towering flames, a series of blasts rocked the entire countryside. The hydroformer was only around six months old at this point and had been shut down temporarily for maintenance. While it was offline, a valve malfunctioned, mixing oxygen and highly flammable gases, transforming it into a 26-story bomb. And that morning, when the workers went to start it back up, it detonated. Despite heroic efforts, the explosions hurled tons of steel from storage tanks into the community, making a shambles of houses and causing two deaths. The force of the blasts can be seen from the caved-in walls and windowless residences, and upended cars tossed for several hundred feet. Before the Holocaust had been brought under control, damage estimates had reached 10 million in one of the worst fires of its kind on record. Everybody that we spoke to uh, said that uh, there are probably one or two events in their lives that they remember. Morovich again, talking about the documentary he worked on at the Historical Society. 
they remember if they were old enough, they remember Pearl Harbor. If they were a little bit younger, they remember when JFK got shot. And everybody else, everybody we talked with said the other thing they remember is this explosion. Because this explosion just seared into the minds of people. The hydroformer was ripped to shreds. Shrapnel flew everywhere. It landed on homes and railroad cars. One five-ton piece crushed a grocery store. Another piece landed in the bed of three-year-old Ricky Pluniak, who was killed instantly. His brother, Ron, lost his leg, and more than 40 other people were injured. Meanwhile, a fireball unfurled thousands of feet into the air. One paper wrote that the mushroom cloud, quote, obscured the sun and turned day to night. It was just so frightening, so massive. Uh, people thought their lives were in danger. Uh, people thought initially, some did, that uh, the Russians had dropped the atom bomb on us. And this was this is what we were experiencing. Some got on their hands and knees and started to pray because they were convinced this was the end of the world. Back at the refinery, the hydroformer was surrounded by dozens of tanks, each holding up to a million gallons of oil. Steel fragments from the explosion punctured holes in the tanks, which began to leak all over the floor. The oil caught fire and spread. By noon, it covered 40 acres of land. The refinery had its own fire department, which went to work with support from departments in Whiting, Hammond, East Chicago, and Gary. But the fire was too big and covered too much land. They couldn't get close enough to put it out. Their only hope was containment. It took them two days to get the fire under control, and more than eight days before the last rogue flame was out. Miraculously, the men who had been working on the unit survived. The only other casualty, besides three-year-old Ricky Pluniak, was a foreman at the refinery who reportedly suffered a heart attack. When they constructed this refinery, they had a lot of experience with fire. John Vlashuk talking about Standard Oil. They built um, kind of levees around all of the tanks because they knew what happens is if you have a fire, the eventually the tank usually will rupture, even if you use like good hardy steel. And that flow of at times millions of gallons of burning petroleum is really dangerous, not just to bodies, but they were concerned about property. In other words, if you're standard oil, you basically know something like this is going to happen eventually. And so that levee exists to hold all of that burning material. And you still see it today. If you go to refineries, um, they have the same thing. Of course, even a levee can't manage an explosion like the one in 1955. So you prepare for that eventuality, too. John D. Rockefeller writes about it, um, even in the early days, that it was part of doing business. And, and they write about it so casually, even when people die, that it's like, okay, well, you know, we got to start going again. Let's make sure we get our fire insurance going, which is also what they did in this fire. The neighborhood across the street, the former Rockefeller Park, since renamed Stieglitz Park, had gotten the worst of it. 200 homes were damaged. Standard Oil used its insurance payout to buy and bulldoze 140 of them, relocating their occupants. Mirovich said this marked a kind of turning point for Whiting. After this explosion, things changed. It made everyone feel vulnerable for the first time. Um, and that 
that then eroded some of the trust that people had in the refinery uh, because this was the first time that anyone outside of the refinery got killed. This was the first time that anyone outside of the refinery had their homes damaged. This was the first time that it wiped out a whole neighborhood. And beyond that, even though Standard Oil said, we won't lay anybody off as a result of this. And they didn't immediately. But what happened was this was like a, a urban renewal within the refinery. The company started replacing all the old equipment, which had been destroyed by the fire, with the latest technology. And this technology began to replace some of the tasks that had previously been done by people. And so in the years which followed, uh, like 1958, 59, three, four years after the uh, refinery explosion, people started getting laid off in massive numbers. It then eroded one more thing in the community. Uh, there were 7,000 people working in the refinery at the time of the explosion. Uh, today it's down to under 1,800, I think. Um, massive numbers of people are gone. Over the years, more and more workers and their families moved out of Whiting, an exodus made possible in part by the very gasoline produced by the refinery. That time when everybody said, oh, you know, everybody works at the refinery, everybody's got a connection to the refinery. That day's gone. Now it's tough to find anybody in this town who has a connection to the refinery. But that's not the end of the story. Because, of course, the refinery is still there, and its effects are still being revealed. So I called my friend Ava Tomasulei Garcia, a fourth-generation resident of Northwest Indiana. Ava has written a lot about the Calumet over the years, including one of my favorite pieces ever for Belt Magazine. It's called What Indiana Dunes National Park and the Border Wall Have in Common. Anyway, look it up. Uh, it's the most uh, kind of incredible landscape I've ever been to because you'll turn one way, you'll see a Unilever uh, factory. You turn the other way, there's a, just, you know, a kind of a beautiful lake with swans um, nesting on it uh, because uh, the Calumet has kind of retained that character uh, as this kind of um, incredible wetlands and through, uh, you know, 100 plus years of um, pollution. Ava is now at Columbia University working on a PhD in anthropology. She's focusing mostly on the ongoing health effects of the region's industry. So, of course, we all know about um, these kind of monumental diseases and their ubiquity uh, in the Calumet. In my family, um, there's many, many, many painful histories of, of cancers, uh, dementia, asthma, these things that, that people know are linked to working in, in steel mills, working, um, you know, in, in the air polluted by BP Amico um, and a million other industries. She says one of the biggest challenges for residents is these undiagnosable illnesses or when you get sick from living around pollution and contaminants like an oil refinery, but you can't link them to any specific source. And yet, uh, because of how shitty the law is and how shitty our kind of medical understanding of, of um, cumulative trauma of uh, pollution um, exposure, you know, these are illnesses that are never going to be, be able to be directly attributed to these corporations, there's never going to be a kind of restitution or any way to say, oh, you know, it was this source specifically that gave me this, this disease or, you know, anything like that. And this gets at, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of the relationship between people and the refinery. They're not only connected economically and geographically. There's a chemical, elemental connection. The fire of 1955 was the most obvious manifestation of this 
when it literally spread into the community. But it's much bigger than that. Industrialization is not something that got tacked on to some pre-existing state. It's a fundamental restructuring of nature. It's a new social and economic and environmental compact in which people bent the arc of our biological relationships toward extraction and consumption, toward an endless fire burning on the southern shores of Lake Michigan. Looking at the Calumet, uh, you know, the whiting landscape, it's just so clear that there's this other kind of um, duality that just doesn't make any sense, this division between the, the discursive and the geologic or the natural and the, the man-made. The stuff we're talking about is it's not either or natural or not. It's, it's somehow existing in this space where, you know, it's impossible to make the division between those two things uh, to begin with. Years ago, I went to Whiting and drove around the refinery with a local activist named Thomas Frank. I went back recently to jog my memory and ended up just standing around staring at cokers. I thought about what Ava had said, about how the refinery is part and parcel of this new and volatile nature, the one we've constructed out of oil and steel. It's easy to understand the bargain Whiting made early on, tolerating the inherent dangers of the refinery in exchange for wealth and amenities so long as Standard Oil would keep its dirty business contained. But this idea was never truly possible, not really. As Luis Arreo once wrote, there is no here or there, it's all here. Here, where the Whiting Refinery burns on the southern shores of Lake Michigan, a slow motion disaster unfolding behind and beyond its walls. This episode was written and produced by me, Ryan Schnur, with editing by Dirk Walker. Production assistance from Cassidy Duncan. Theme music by Michael Bazo. Additional music by Jazar. Archival recordings courtesy of the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration, the Whiting-Robertsdale Historical Society, and Periscope Films. Special thanks to everyone who spoke with me for the project, and to Anna Schnur, Ray Fouché, Shannon McMullen, Rachel Haverlock, Shara Vostrel, Emiliano Aguilar, Alex Chambers, Ed Simon, and the members of the Whiting Robertsdale Historical Society. Fire is a production of Belt Magazine and Fortlander Media. Support for this project came from Belt readers and members, Indiana Humanities, the Purdue University Department of American Studies, Jim Babcock, and the Albert LePage Center for History and the Public Interest. You can find links to sources and further reading, along with more episodes, at beltmag.com fire. Next time, we're headed underground, to the site of Pennsylvania's Forever Fire. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>